0: Beloved congregation of the Lord, would you read with me again Matthew 22 and verse 9 Go ye therefore into the highways and as many as ye shall find bid to the marriage Brothers and sisters in the Lord, one of the most challenging aspects of gospel preaching is helping Christians to understand those themes and truths of the Bible which are most practical. What do I mean? Well, often when we come to a worship service with discouragements, anxious cares, worries, And burdens and sorrows, perhaps we wish that the word of God would always address specifically the problems that we have. That as it were, God would look down upon us in our context and join us in considering the things we are going through. Indeed, we can praise God that some portions of the Bible do so, so speak to us in our individual circumstances. But sometimes, I'm sure you'll agree, God does not bring comfort to his people by joining us in looking down at our own context, but by rather inviting us to look up, to rise above our small little lives and to see them in the broader context, the great scheme of salvation which God is working out in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's through that change of perspective that the Lord can minister a measure of hope and comfort to the soul where we behold God in his majesty working all things together for our good and for his glory. And so the text that we come to this morning as we've been working through every verse in this great parable of the wedding banquet is such a text and invites us to regard the glory of Christ in his great work of the call of God the Gentiles. And it's a huge theme, a huge topic, one that I don't intend to cover just in one sermon, but through a number of them. But I wish in this message simply didn't introduce it, to have us fixate upon the importance of this in the great history of redemption and in the purposes of God. And maybe children you are asking, well, why is he talking about Gentiles? I don't see the word Gentile in that verse. Well, children, let's go back and remember how far we've come in this parable. It is a heavenly story, but one conveyed through these earthly figures. It has spiritual meanings, but but you need to see it in its whole context to understand them. God is set forth here as a glorious king who is inviting his subjects to come to the wedding banquet of his son. He sends out his servants, and shock and horror, a great many of them not only refuse and despise this call, but abuse and kill his messengers. And so the king, as we have seen in recent messages, he sends forth his armies and destroys those murderers burning up their city. And the king sends the word unto his servants. The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. What is all this? Well, the wedding banquet is the glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God, and he bids sinners to come unto his great wedding banquet to receive in faith his great salvation through his shed blood. Likewise, these... Initial despisers of the gospel call and invitation are the nation of the Jews. And the judgment spoken of is, in the first instance, the judgment upon the Jewish nation, upon their crucifixion of the Lord and the persecution of his apostles and ministers. But it's not only about that judgment In 70 AD, when the Roman centurions burned down the city of Jerusalem, sacked the temple, and caused many, many people to be killed. No, it's also about what follows from that. The king, you see, is not content that there be no, uh, or at least very few people, coming to the wedding banquet. No, he says, Go out to the highways, go to the furthest reaches of my kingdom, Find the nobodies, the stragglers, the people of no regard or reputation, and bid them come to the wedding banquet. What is that? Well, that is the Gentiles. Listen to what John Calvin says about this text. Quote, Having shown that they are unworthy of the grace of God, who disdainfully rejected when offered to them, Christ now says that their place is supplied by others by the mean and despised common people. And here is described the calling of the Gentiles, which is to excite the Jews to jealousy, as we have it in the Song of Moses. Quote, I will move them to jealousy with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Deuteronomy 32, 21. Having been first elected, they imagined that the grace of God was bound to them, as if God could not uh, lack them, and how haughtily they despised all others is well known. So the text before us it speaks of the calling of the Gentiles. This is, in its own place, just as important as the judgment upon the Jews. Two truths joined together. And indeed, one that is much practical significance to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today. This is a work that has begun and will not be carried out fully until the return of our Savior. The calling of the Gentiles. It is this gospel, Matthew, which highlights this truth. It does so at the same time as recognizing that the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry had a special calling to his own kinsmen according to the flesh, the Jews. He said himself in Matthew 15, 24, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Indeed, in his earthly ministry, he was contained within that nation of the Gentiles, the territory of it. And yet throughout, throughout the history recorded in this great gospel uh, record in the book of Matthew, you see how the calling of the Gentiles is everywhere anticipated. Children, maybe you remember the story of the wise men. Do you remember that from Matthew 22? There were these wise men from the east who came to King Herod, and they asked that question of them, of him, that is, where is he that is born king of the Jews? We have, for we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Even from the days of Jesus' earliest childhood, God was sending Gentiles from distant lands to worship him. Or maybe you think of that great story of the centurion. One of those miracles recorded early on in uh, Matthew's gospel. It was that he had a servant of his who was on the brink of death. And he sends people to come unto his roof and to heal his his servant and then on the way there Jesus he hears word from the centurion i am not worthy that you should come under my roof but say the word and my servant shall be healed and what is it the lord Jesus says in response to the centurion's servant sorry the centurion's faith before he heals his servant he says in Matthew 8 verse 11 and i say unto you that many shall come from the east and west And shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Indeed, Matthew chapter 12 cites a prophecy of Isaiah. That speaks of the calling of the Gentiles and ascribes it. To Jesus Christ, Matthew 12, verse 19, He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench, till he shall send forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Matthew 21, verse Forty-two, the chapter right before our text, you see how it is that the Lord Jesus begins to be more specific, how it's through the rejection of himself by the Jews that the Gentiles will be brought into the covenant of grace. Matthew 21, verse 42. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected? The same is become the head of the corner, This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And later on, Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus gets more specific and exemplifies this truth about the call of the Gentiles. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then the end shall come. Here you see the call of the Gentiles. This is a glorious work of our Savior Jesus Christ. It is what he is bringing about. He, through his gospel invitation, is bringing all nations into the bond of his love in the church. It's just as the Apostle Paul said in Romans 15 and verse 8, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision, that is of the Jews, for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, and, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. This is... Not something we can just skip over or brush over a congregation. It's a central truth in the Bible. The call of the Gentiles. And so today we propose just to begin. Begin to think about this. To introduce the subject. That we may not just see it as another historical fact. But something which the Lord Jesus Christ is doing. In our own day. That our hearts and lives may be attuned and conformed unto his great purpose and mission in history. There is just uh, an introduction to it. So now let us consider, in the first place, the identity of the Gentiles. Who is it that we're talking about? What is a Gentile? Well, this word uh, Gentile, which is commonly used in the English language when we see it surface a number of places in the Bible. In the Greek and the Hebrew, it is uh, just referring to a nation, to a nation, to a group of people with shared customs, shared history, sometimes shared ancestry. This is the group of people that is referred to in Acts 17, verse 26, where the Apostle Paul says this, God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation." You see, the Bible teaches concerning human beings that there is both unity and diversity. Unity in all that are made in the image of God. All are descended of one blood, as Acts 17 says, descended from Adam. And yet... There is a diversity a God has appointed in his decree that as there is a spreading out over the whole world, there are distinct peoples, distinct nations, distinct Gentiles. This is the essential point, that a unity in their humanity does not entail their uniformity, but they are diverse and different, having distinct traits one from another. Deuteronomy 32 verse 7 and 8 the great song of Moses speaks about this remember the days of old consider the years of many generations ask thy father and he will show thee thy elders and they will tell thee when the most high divided the nation to the nations their inheritance when he separated the sons of adam he set the, bond, the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. So I believe the, the meaning there that he separated the sons of Adam, set the bounds of the people according to the children of Israel. I think what it's approximately saying as I look at the commentators is that God has not this purpose to have one identical group of people across the whole world with the same language, customs, uh, and territories. No but rather that they are separated and distinct, one from another. And according approximately to the number of the children of Israel, that just like the children of Israel are a nation, so there will be many other nations throughout the world. And we may ask the question, how is it this came about? We may observe it readily enough that indeed there's a multitude of nations that make up the shared human family in the world today. How is it that it came about? Well, in one way, we could go back to the very beginning and see how it was that God made Adam and Eve in his own image, God's own image, and commanded them to go out through the earth and multiply. But I think perhaps it's better to go go a little bit uh, further ahead in history, which is why I had you read from Genesis chapter 9. Remember, of course, that the flood that covered the whole earth took place in 2348 B.C. And following that flood, you have every living person descended from Adam has been wiped out through the fearful judgment of God, justly bringing vengeance For the wickedness and the violence, idolatry, and hatred of mankind, but also sparing in his grace one family Noah, his wife, and his three sons. Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives. There in the ark with all of the animals. Children, maybe you've gone down there to the United States and Kentucky and seen that great replica that's made to scale of the ark. and It's proven to be a great instruction tool of uh, many people who who marvel at how wise and good and gracious God was to uh, give Noah the schematics and the and the ability in order to make such a great structure to rescue all the creatures and, and also the human race from total destruction. But sometimes we forget that if that was all that God had done, this whole history of this world would have proceeded very differently. He also makes a covenant with Noah and his seed after him. Maybe you uh, heard that spoken about in uh, verse 20 of Genesis 8. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord and took every clean beast and every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. And he goes on to expound this gracious covenant with Noah and his posterity. There are different ways to understand this covenant. But the correct way, which I will encourage you to understand it, is that this is the covenant of grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. That is why it begins with a sacrifice of blood. It's not just a covenant of nature or a covenant of common grace, as even some Reformed theologians have, have taught. But no, it's founded upon the shedding of blood and the revelation of the gospel, that sweet-smelling savor unto God, which is ultimately fulfilled in the giving and the receiving of the offering of Jesus Christ. And yes, while the the covenant of grace under the Noahic administration, it does extend to the whole universe, all the creatures, all of mankind are entailed in the covenant, or you read it carefully, it especially concerns his people, his elect. That all things in the whole universe are bound up with this: that um, that summertime and harvest and winter and the re- regular rhythms of life, they will continue and continue so that God in His mercy may call his elect verse. Eight, and God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, and I, and I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl and of the cattle and every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more, By the waters of a flood, neither shall there be any more be a flood to destroy the earth. Many other things contained here. You have the affirmation that man is made in the image of God. And that according to the law of God, whosoever sheds innocent blood, whosoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. There is... Justice required in the law of God, also capital punishment for all those who take innocent life. And many other lessons could be drawn from this. But the point is that you see that at that point, the whole human race was found in one family. And with that family, God's covenant, gracious covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ was made for the sake of the gathering of the elect. And there, you see that there is a purpose here, a purpose that they would spread out, that they would multiply. Verse 7, And you be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply therein. Now, I would simply point to you that in that very command, there is the seed of the multiplicity of nations in the nature of humanity to spread out over the world because we are finite and limited as we seek to carry out the Lord's will to serve him. What results is that each locale, every location takes on a different character, a different culture, a different language if it's extended over a long enough length of time. Listen to one theologian by the name of Stephen Wolfe, how he puts it. Given the natural limitedness of man and our natural sociality, that is, the ability to cooperate with others, it is evident that people groups would have formed as Adam's progeny spread across the earth, resulting in a dazzling diversity of cultures, each having its own customs, dialects, words for things, names of landmarks, material culture, and vocational practices. The peculiarities of geography would be deeply formative, each place having unique requirements of agriculture, unique animal and plant life, seasonal changes, distinct landmarks, climates, etc., As they shape the land, the land shapes them as if the people in place belong together. This was God's purpose, not that there be a one monoculture with a single uh, people. But no, as they spread out, it seems that given the very nature of humanity, this would have happened. Now, we recognize, of course, that the occasion by which this command Uh, That God gave in the Noahic covenant was carried out, it was also attended by another event, which is also very significant, namely the Tower of Babel. If you will skip ahead to Genesis 11, you see how it was that uh, that transpired in Genesis 11 and verse 1. And the whole earth was of one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now, that's, I think, an important thing to understand about the Tower of Babel. It's not just a nice story, and it's certainly not something that should be read in isolation from what came before. It was a willful act of disobedience on the part of these people. They had a command to spread out, and their purpose on this occasion, as the descendants of Noah, was rather to build from one location to concentrate all of their powers and abilities such that they could make a name for themselves. And this tower that they were making, is, as you trace it out, it seems to have not just an architectural purpose, but a religious purpose. It's going to be the center of a new religion. And so you see that there is here a deviation from God's will. And so as you continue reading in verse 6... And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad thence upon the face of all the earth. And they left off to build the city. Therefore, the name of it is called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. From thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of the earth. So rather than allow this one world government, one world religion to take place, instead what you see is a dividing of the people as God confuses their languages, causes that one group of people with one language to suddenly begin to speak in different languages, then what happens is they all separate and they are divided over the face of the earth. And it seems to be an act of uh, mercy on the part of God. Not that they, in their evil, would be able to remain in that one place. But no, as the nations and the peoples are divided, so also will be the power and strength of any government. And in this way, God's purposes are carried out. You notice, did you, uh, as we read a little bit of Genesis chapter 10, that it speaks uh, in verse 5 of chapter 10 in this way, after it begins to get into the genealogy of the different sons of Noah, By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, everyone after his tongue, after their families in their nations. And that is the first use of the Hebrew word goyim or nation in the Bible. The isles of the Gentiles seems not to just refer to the islands, but it seems to be a Hebrew way of speaking of distant lands that are populated by by other peoples. And so the history here is borne out that you have indeed the Noahic Covenant where God commands the forming of different nations implicitly, and then explicitly he actually brings it about through the scattering of the Tower of Babel. Now here at this point, we ought to reflect and ask this question, is it the case, is it the case that the existence of different nationalities is itself a problem is it sinful is it wrong is it something that we ought to do away with this is the sort of discussion that sometimes takes place in christian circles Well, it was the result of a kind of act of judgment at tower of babel so perhaps the argument would be that what what really ought to happen is that there should not be different peoples there should only be one people there should not be many cultures there should be one culture there should not be many countries, there should be one world government. This is the sort of discussion that we'll sometimes have. That perhaps with the coming of the gospel, which destroys all the works of sin, perhaps that is ultimately what Christians should support. Well, Let me read again from uh, Stephen Wolfe, who I think has a good comment about this fact, that diversities of nations are not themselves sinful... They are not themselves wrong. It is, of course, the case that they become sinful when they reject God's will, but they themselves are not. Let me read what he says here. the variety of cultures we see today, though tainted with sin and content, is not itself a result of sin or misery, but simply the product of natural human interaction in a locale over time and generations. We were made for this. Do we really want... To blame regional dialects, dances, music, dress, and all other particularities entirely on the loss or diminishment of some human faculty or some other sinful impulse as some kind of um, or as some kind of advantageous good, which means a good that comes through a bad result. If human sameness is natural to man and human diversity is a consequence of sin, then which lost faculty would have led to sameness? Further, do we see foreign ways of life today as tragic differences, symbolic of our sin? Is diversity in the world in the same category as bad-tasting medicine? Or do we experience diversity with joy and perhaps even marvel at the possibility of being human in God's world? The fact is, though Christians disagree on the prudence of multiculturalism, we see cultural diversity on earth as, in itself, an unqualified good, as it pleases us that the gospel is for the nations. This is the contention that that this man is making, that indeed, while indeed there was much sin in the diversity of nations as they developed, both before and afterward... Yet, the very existence of nations is not sinful. When we read in Genesis 12, and we read of the calling of Abraham, there is, I think, a very uh, important phrase in the words that, that God gives there. There in... Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that curse thee. I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now, I think that's significant. The same word for Gentile is used here to refer to Abraham and his descendants, the the descendants of Abraham according to the flesh. They will be one nation, one Gentile, one group. But through them will all the families of the earth be blessed. Not that all the families of the earth will become one nation, but through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Blessed. Indeed, you see this in the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, in Revelation 7, verse 9, in that great heavenly vision that is seen of the glorious saints in heaven. And after this, I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and throne and unto his Lamb. Well in heaven we understand, don't we, that nothing that is wrong or sinful will carry forward into that state of glory. And yet we see that distinctions in nations and languages and tongues, those continue. And so we can say here that This is an important biblical truth. Yes, a unity of the human family, all made in the image of God. And yet, diversity of ethnicity, of culture, of nationality, of country, of language, these things are not wrong in themselves. Indeed, they are in God's plan for his own glory. I think these things are important to make clear. I remember when I was in seminary, I was talking to some person who was going to a Presbyterian church uh, in town. And he said, well, one of the reasons I had to leave that church was that people were pressuring people who had white skin to say, well, you need to actually confess your white privileges and repent of your whiteness. Where does that sort of thinking come from? Well, Well, many things and many doctrines of the Bible could be used to refute that way of thinking. One of the ways you could uh, could refute that is to say that different uh, traits that can come with this diversity of nations are not sin. Whatever our skin may be, whatever our language may be, whatever our ancestry may be, all are made in the image of God, and all peoples are worthy of respect. The gospel, it brings about a harmony between brothers and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and a unity and harmony that transcends differences without insisting that differences are themselves wrong. I put these things to think clearly about the identity of the Gentiles. In the second place, we'll begin to consider the second uh, matter and, and probably continue it also in in subsequent messages, but that is the condition of the Gentiles. If we go back to this original text that we are considering, we'll remind you, in verse 9 of Matthew 22, Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find bid to the marriage. Well, we see there, don't we? that this is describing the Gentiles in a specific way. They're described as not in the core or the interior of the kingdom, but more on the periphery, on the the far-flung regions where they are not given a place of prestige or honor. Listen to what Dr. John Gill says. The Gentile world and Gentile sinners, who in respect of the Jews were far off, were walking in their own ways and in the high road to destruction, and made to note their being the vilest of sinners, as having nothing to recommend them to the divine favor and to such privileges as this entertainment expresses. Now, this uh, reference to them as on the highways is important for us to understand. It speaks of a very desperate spiritual condition of the Gentile nations upon the coming of Christ. And I would add just a couple caveats before I explain this doctrine of the condition of the Gentiles before the coming of Christ. One is that earlier on, after the days of Noah, you do see some godly Gentile nations. Maybe you were here for our Thanksgiving service. You remember how we spoke in Genesis 14 about that mysterious man Melchizedek, the king of Salem who was a high priest to the most high God. You could likewise look at people like um, Moses' father-in-law Jethro, and you can read about him in Exodus 18. In either case, you have multiple priests unto the most high God who are not of the stock or lineage of Abraham. And yet what you do see is that there is these remnants of true religion. Where does it come from? Well, we're not entirely sure, but surely it was connected at least to the revelation of God's gospel given during the time of the Noahic covenant. And then what you tend to see is that there is this uh, turning away from the light of the gospel. So that is the first caveat. The other caveat I'll make about this is that within the nation of the Jews themselves, you have many Gentiles who were engrafted in before the coming of Christ. In Genesis 17 Verse 23, you read about this. And Abraham took Ishmael's son and all that were born in his house and all they that were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the selfsame day as God had said unto them. So even you have Gentiles, servants in his house who were receiving the sign of the covenant, who were brought into the true worship of God in the days of Abraham. Likewise, in Exodus 12, verse 28, where you read about the exodus out of Egypt as the people are delivered from Egyptian bondage. We read in Exodus 12, verse 28, and a mixed multitude went up also with them and flocks and herds and very much cattle. The mixed multitude would refer to many Gentiles who were brought into that nation, even in the days of um, of the captivity in in Egypt, and then being brought out of it, Gentiles were brought into the covenant people of God. We could multiply the cases. You think of, for example, how Joseph and Moses and others would marry Gentile women, and they were brought into the people of God. And most prominently, you have the example of Ruth, Ruth, who one of the one of the um, Ancestors of King David and of Jesus Christ. Though she was a Moabite, she was the one who said in Ruth chapter 1, Entreat me not to leave thee, she says to her uh, mother in law, or return from following after thee, or whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. It's not simply the case that the the Jewish church or the Old Covenant church was strictly genealogic, genealogical or a racial group. No, it was spiritual in nature. Gentiles could and were grafted in, as many examples say. And yet we know that the prominent, the prominent truth always was that they were separated from the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were largely excluded from God's grace and favor. Psalm 147, verse 19. He showed his word unto Jacob, his statutes, and his judgments unto Israel. He hath not dealt so with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. What a terrible thing to contemplate. Whole nations of people shut out out of the truth of God, separated from the grace and favor of God. Acts 14, verse 16. God in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Even the prophets would use the, the Gentiles as a very example of evil. And say in Ezekiel chapter 11 and verse 12, And ye shall know that I am the Lord, for ye have not walked in my statutes, neither executed my judgments, but have done after the manner of the heathen, the Gentiles that are round about you. Even Jesus himself would would speak that way when he gives instructions to his disciples in Matthew 6, verse 7, but when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen, the Gentiles, do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Gentiles are basically synonymous with foolishness, wickedness, idolatry, perversion. This is exactly what you see throughout The Old and New Testament, as indeed the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 12, puts it so so well. That at that time, ye, that is Gentile Christians, were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Here is the sorry condition of the Gentiles. They're on the highways. They're scattered about, separated from the covenants of promise, separated from the knowledge of Christ, destined for an eternity in hell. I remember when I was listening to one uh, missionary who was interviewed by our synod who was going to go work in Asia. He had been converted out of unbelief, and the majority of his own people, they were unbelievers. And the pastor who's interviewing said, sir, I would ask you this question. What happens to those who die without a knowledge of the gospel? And he began to weep because he knew that his own people were in that category. He said, they perish in hell. So it is. This is the people. This is the people that we find here now called We'll return to this and consider it in more detail, but I want to just end with this prophecy of Isaiah, showing forth the amazing work of calling these desperate people the Gentiles. Isaiah 65, verse 1. I am sought of them that asked not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, behold me, behold me unto a nation that was not called By my name. Let us see in this glorious work of God in calling the Gentiles a mercy that has also been extended to us. Let us rejoice in God for it and let us seek to draw comfort from the astonishing wisdom, majesty, and grace of our Lord. Amen.